Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fugae to Fugazi. Joining me once again to discuss Pink Frosty from the 1998 album End Hits is the man himself, the owner of Inner Ear Studios, who engineered almost every Fugazi recording, Donzi and Tara. So, continuing our conversation... Sure. What was your impression of it first? Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you, sort of, sort of bounce it back into your court. What was your impression when you first heard it? I was thinking a lot about my first impressions of this, in fact, because it was very hard as a Fugazi fan when this came out not to read the song. And I'm, you know, just talking lyrically for now. Um, you, you said last time you weren't a big lyrics person, but I mean, my, the immediate impact on me was it sounded like a song about being in a band to me and the difficulty and pressure of keeping a band together. And we've talked before on this podcast about the title of the record end hits and you know what it actually means. But I think at the time, a lot of people were asking themselves, is this, is this a statement that this is the last Fugazi record? So yeah, coupled with that, um, that was the immediate impact on me. Yeah. The, um, well, first of all, let's, let's uh, blow apart the whole idea of that, that being the last record because we know it wasn't, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the uh, there was some sort of overdub we're doing where Brendan had to um, uh, do a couple crashes at the end of a song and we had to overdub them and I just slated it in hits and, I, um, and that caught on and I guess that's the way they named the album. I didn't know they were going to do it. There was no light bulb that went off at the time. It was just the, the way it was done. Um, but I think I covered that ground before. The the whole idea of 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 Pink Frosty, I feel this is what, the way it, it impacts me. Is I you're right? I didn't listen to the the words that closely at first. What struck me was that they had dynamics. They were using dynamics. They were using dynamics to entice you, and they would have. A song like Pink Frosty, and then they could clobber you with just a searing uh, rendition of another song before or after that, and it would be that much more forceful. So it's a um, it's basically an ex- exercise in dynamics. Um, that's my take on it. I was recently listening to an interview with Ian Mackay. He was talking about the Teen Idols and his, I think about his mother or maybe even his grandmother coming to see him play in Teen Idols and uh, sort of overhearing them say about it, like, um, well, they, they play awfully loud. I wonder if it would have more impact if they played loud sometimes, but sometimes they played very quietly, and he really thought about that, and he said that that really uh, influenced what he would do with Fugazi later, so yeah, case in point of that, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's very powerful. Um, That's the way my impression was with uh, punk music at the very beginning. It had a lot of energy, it certainly had the volume, and it had the, it got the emotion stirred, but you really have to get them stirred and get that volume up from a certain point. And Pink Frosty 
sort of demonstrates that point where you're bringing it up from. And the way he handles the fragile vocals, the way the instruments are are so fragile, and, and the way Brendan plays the drums, it just, it's, it's like they're walking on eggshells for a little while. So it, it is very powerful in that way. And like I said, the, that next to a lot of the other songs just makes the other songs that much more powerful. Yeah, and if, uh, it works on a record, and of course it works very interestingly in a live show too. Um, it helps if they have the right audience, and you know some nights would be different than others. But uh, yeah, you'd you'd have shows where they're playing very quiet songs or sections of songs, very quiet indeed. And yeah, it's sort of like you could hear a pin drop, and it was very dramatic. Yeah, yeah, they were. Um, Kariki played at a, um, this was about a year ago or so, um, at a, a library in D.C. outside. Uh, this was an outside concert. I guess it was more than a year ago, a year and a half ago or so, before the um, pandemic really struck hard. And they are very, very aware of everyone else in the band's volume. They want to make sure that it all fits in right. It's not like setting, oh, I always set my guitar to a six, or I always sing this loud, I always get close to the mic. I know Ian was singing different distances from the microphone because it fit in better with the music, and it just worked amazingly well. It's, it just, it's stunning when you are aware of, of, of what they're doing with the volume and how they're playing with it, trying to make it more impactful and more, I guess, more, uh, more suggestive, more, more um, tangible to the people who are listening, uh, not just hitting them in the face with it and, and, and you know, blurring everything they hear. It just, it just, it's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really draws you in. Um, in, yeah. into a world, into a into a mood, um, mm-hmm. when you're listening to a song like this one, or uh, yeah, some of some of the quieter even songs or Kariki. As an engineer, do you have memories of of doing this? Like, how did you how did you capture the things that are happening on the drums and with Ian's vocals? <laughs> I hate to admit this. No, I don't. I have memories of how exactly it was done. But I know that they they use their own talents to manipulate it. Just like a, a choir, uh, when a choir is recorded, they want to be recorded not person by person. They want the whole group to come in and everybody else is kind of aware of what's happening mm-hmm. and how it treats the song and that's exactly the way they did it they they basically they knew the song they practiced it very well they knew that it had to be done a certain way and they just they just did it i mean one thing that might that strikes one about this song is reverb for example, like uh, famously, they almost use zero reverb on Steady Diet of Nothing, but here, there's a lot of it. What kind of a thing would Fugazi do when they would need reverb? Was it like some kind of digital thing? Did you have a big plate unit? Um, anything like that? You <laughs> no, remember? no. I, no, I had uh, digital reverbs like pretty much everybody else did. Uh-huh. I didn't have a plate reverb. 
Uh, plate reverbs are very hard to maintain, and you need a separate room for it and all that, and they're prone to noise and all sorts of environmental problems. Um, but they knew how to use it, and they knew when not to use it, too. And uh, they, when they did use it, they used it for a reason. Hmm. And I think that stands out in this. Yeah, um, Brendan did tell me a little about this. We were talking about the instrument soundtrack in particular and th- that demo. Um, by, by the way, people who listen to the Pink Frosty demo and instrument soundtrack, uh, that's... That's you right at the beginning of the whole thing saying the following is for reference only. So a little bit of Don yeah. <laughs> on that track. Uh, that's a nice little cameo that you have. Um, but uh, yeah, Brendan was telling me at the time they were experimenting with uh, putting tea towels on the snare. And he was also talking about how he would uh, close mic a crash cymbal like within an inch and it would... Just he would hit it very lightly and get this very big hollow gongy sound. Um, so that's hmm. that's something people might try if they're going after the pink frosty sound, I suppose. Sure, um, Brendan was absolutely coming into his own as far as being an engineer at that point, and he was uh, thinking of lots of different ideas as far as making the album. Um, I, I, diverse isn't the right word, but more, um, more. well, you could pick out this piece of candy, and it tastes like this, and you have another piece of candy, and it tastes a little bit different, and you have some with sprinkles on it, and have one with nuts on it. So it's, it's, a, it's a whole little box of gems in a long way. Not only are Brendan's uh, things, I mean, notably his bell, too. His bell sounds really interesting in this song. A lot of sort of reverb, very sort of soft, close mic sounds, and also, of course, Ian's vocals. Um, it sounds like not only is he delivering them very quietly and right up on the microphone, but it sounds like they're double-tracked sometimes, but uh, it's some of the lines it's just a solo vocal track, so there's some interesting choices going on there. Yeah, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a very neat sound you get when you have mic'd something that's going to be played fairly loud, now all of a sudden you play it softly. You get this, I don't know, a very wispy type sound that isn't right for every song, but it works on this song. Mm. Yeah, something also, I was talking to Ted Nicely, and uh, he didn't work on this record, but he was saying to me that one thing he really remembers working with Ian on was his these quiet sections of recorded Fugazi songs, you know, just really delivering lines so that, uh, so that they wouldn't sound all smacky and spitty, I think is what he said. Um, so mm-hmm. that's something that Ian had to work out a little, but he sounds like he really was sort of an expert at it by the time they did this, because it's quite, yeah, it's quite an impactful, uh, vocal take. Yeah, there's a lot of engineers and a lot of musicians uh, are aware of of the power of compressors on music. And when used correctly, can have a a very, very um, pleasing effect. But you can't use them all the time. So you have to choose when not to use them. Mm -hmm. And you have to choose when 
things shouldn't be all smacky up to the front and you have to put some things in the background a little bit. Uh, I guess it's just like a, a painting. You know, there has to be a background to something. Something has to be in the foreground. Something, different colors um, bring out what is to be seen first. And there's other muted colors that need to be seen what's next or what, what comes after that. Uh, so there's a hierarchy in a lot of ways. And this hierarchy can be played into songs and should be played into songs you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of musical groups that have sort of a, a, a one-level approach, and they're very planar in, in the way they play. It's, it starts at a certain level and tone and temperament, and it continues that way pretty much throughout the entire song. And it doesn't really contribute to a song like that. I mean, give people a little bit of a surprise here and there. Yeah. You you just used words like colors. You were describing things in sort of visual terms. Are you uh, one of these people who sort of sees music? Uh, do you do you have like a visual way of conceptualizing it? <laughs> well, I'm an art student. I don't know anything about engineering. <laughs> um, all I know is that if there are lots of blinking, brightly colored lights, people think you know what you're doing. And I play it for all it's worth. <laughs> but <laughs> so because I, I spent uh, um, about 10 years at the National Gallery of Art here in Washington um, before before starting Inner Ear Studios. Well, actually, during Inner Ear was in my basement at the time. So I, I, I enjoy the graphic arts, uh, painting, printmaking, things like that very much. And I equate them a lot with music. And I look at music as a picture hmm. or a painting or an etching. And I say, you know what, okay, you've got to have some blank areas and you've got to have some very intense areas and very dark areas. Hmm. You can't just have it all black um, and you can't just have it all white. It has to be a combination, and you've got to do it right. Yeah, I can imagine that's a that's a really useful way of thinking about music. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's interesting. There are a lot of colors here. It's it does seem like they're dipping into a palette for a lot of different little splashes of color to add to this song. Um, there's, you know, one one other thing you don't hear on a lot of other Fugazi recordings is there's uh, there's tremolo, right? There's um, on this. I don't want to call it a guitar solo, but there's kind of more of a lead sounding guitar later in this track that has tremolo going on, and uh, there's some of that elsewhere on the track. Um, mm -hmm. Do you, do you? I guess you probably don't remember. Would you guess that this was like a, an amp you had in the studio? I, I know their usual performing amps didn't have that uh, a tremolo circuit. I may have had an amp in the studio with that. I've got several of them right now. Yeah. Um, they just chose to put that at that particular time, you know, tremolo, tremolo gives it that wispy sound. And I think that that's what they're going for in this song. Mm -hmm. There's, um, yeah, there's something else that stands out to me. There's some sort of, on the intro to the song, some kind of like shaking, almost mechanical rhythmic sound, which I have no idea what it is, but yeah, they're just along with tremolo. I guess the space of this song just allows them um, the opportunity to, to do interesting sonic things, um, which of course they also did on louder tracks. They have several very loud tracks that they were 
just doing interesting little things, picking behind the nut on the guitars just to make weird little sounds. Um, but I guess there's a there's a different kind of weird sound you can experiment with uh, when a track is this quiet. Yeah, there sure, certainly is. Um, it's it's much more, um, uh, I don't know, uh, tasty, I guess is the right word. You could almost feel it and you can almost taste it because it comes out of comes out of almost silence almost silence not complete silence but almost silence you've got you know a couple guitars playing very 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 quietly and they're they're they seem to be just sort of floating along Mm -hmm. and um, the whole the whole title pink frosty um i know i talked to ian about this last week he says it was taken from another title you may have it on his broadcast but um, that another band did um, a, a sort of a, a, a mock-up of that title, but yeah, uh, Pink Frost by the Chills, to be exact. Okay, you got it. You got it. <laughs> yeah, this is this is what Brendan said to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the 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 title itself has kind of a um, I don't know a, a a a sort of a creamy quality to it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I, I imagine if I were to, to see this song in visual terms and colors, I would call it more of like a navy blue purpley kind of a song. But but yeah, that's one reason the title is mm-hmm. interesting. Pink Frosty. It sounds like such a little insubstantial uh, poof of joy or something. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, someone's going to probably do an exhibit about a lot of the Fugazi songs with different paintings that they've done about the actual song itself. That'd be interesting to see. I would love to see it. Sign me up. I'll take mm-hmm. a ticket. You you bet. You me too. <laughs> um a couple of other things I noticed, uh, I don't know if you have any insight into what these are. There's like some really sharp crack at about 3 minutes 14 seconds with a lot of reverb on it. Maybe maybe just like a rim hit on a snare drum that's sonically manipulated whatever. Um but there's also um, at around 3:35 when Ian's like the last verse of Ian's vocals come in. There's this interesting like rhythmic guitar that's like not not all reverbed out. It sounds very um, sort of straightforwardly clean, and it's just kind of like. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, once again, they're just they're playing with sounds. And some of the cracks and and sharp sounds were carefully, carefully placed in there just to sort of um, kind of wake you up during the song, just to make sure that you're still listening, mm-hmm. I guess, something like that. If I can try to drag you back into the lyrical side of things, um, first of <laughs> well, all... You did... may have to refresh my memory a little <laughs> bit about the lyrics. Oh, I can I can do that. But I mean, first of all, did you ever actually... Did you ever talk about lyrics with Ian or Guy in the studio? I am, um, uh, yes, I did, but I am a more of a phrase and um, uh, person as far as lyrics go. So in other words, how things fit uh-huh. in the song. Uh, you could use whatever word you want, but you need to make them fit so they, 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 they just sound good. Right. Um, you know the cadence is good, and the 
everything about it just uh, the you know if it's iambic pentameter it works in there um so that's my take on the whole thing you could use whatever word you want <laughs> sure well yeah i mean they're not that many words in the song i can just i'll just read them off right now actually it doesn't take long it just goes animosities and apologies back and forth we struggle falter refrain with glue and string and deciphering we try 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 to stay together despite the pain it's not our first time through nor our waterloo back and forth from situation we move to episode but if we can find some peace of mind intertwined the delivery is worth the load so not not knowing for sure what Ian was writing about. I mean, you know the band well enough. Do you feel like at that time, this state of mind those guys were in, do you think this could have been written about it being hard to keep a band together? It may have. I, I don't have insight into that. Right. Um, because, you know, when they have band meetings and things like that, I was not around. Uh, they would do that during practices and rehearsals. I But I think it's... I think it's... I think it's more just look at the enigma and enjoy the enigma and read into it what you want Mm -hmm. and just savor what you think it means. It's almost certainly about some kind of uh, relationship, whether it's two-sided or more. It could, of course, be about a romantic relationship. Um, And, uh, yeah, it, it just really describes the sort of ups and downs and uh, the the work that you have to be willing to do for something that's worth it, for a relationship that's that's really worth it and that you value, I guess. Yeah, I mean, some of the most um, famous paintings are famous because they have many, many interpretations and many meaning meanings. And look at some plays that Shakespeare wrote. I mean, they, they can be taken so many different ways, and that's what makes them exciting. It's not that it's straightforward and they spell it out for you. I yeah. mean, Shakespeare, did, he, he sort of hinted around that, and he basically said, okay, make of this what you will, but I'm going to give you a little hint here. It's nice how the lyrics in this song present, in a, in a way, two sides of things. I, I mean, you might make an initial reading of this song as like, oh, it's, it's a relationship that's hard. Um, this is maybe not a good relationship, but that's not really what the lyrics get across in the end, right? There are animosities, but there are also apologies. There is, um, it says, it's not our first time, but it's not our Waterloo. It's This is not the end of, of a relationship. It's just describing uh, being in the midst of a relationship, and it's not that it's bad, not that it's uh, imminently ending. It's just that uh, it's something worth writing about uh, to, to work on a romantic or a band relationship, I guess. Yeah, I think I think you've said it very, very well, and that's <laughs> one interpretation of it for sure. You know, it's a humble song. It's a it's a song about stepping back and just sort of letting things happen, uh, letting things uh, just happen, and you listen to them and you hear them and you see them, and you can't do that when you're going full blast. So, step back. Yeah, I can imagine at this time, uh, having just uh, basically decided or, you know, having your hand being been forced to close in her ear, maybe the lyrics have a little bit more, um, a little bit more weight for you. 
Um, I, I think there's some that I can imagine a, a Don Zientero applying to his own situation, his own career. You can interpret it like that. Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned Brendan's little towel trick before. Um, I wanted to note that uh, one of the best live um, recordings of Fugazi that you will see, at least of their late period, um, is from, you can find that on YouTube, it's from Hamburg, 1999. In that video of that gig, they close with this song, uh, which is an interesting choice uh, for Fugazi to play Pink Frosty last in their set. But uh, you can see Brendan put the towel over his snare as they start the song off, and... um, so, so that that's kind of interesting. I can't recall uh, seeing that uh, an- another time, which is kind of what makes that a nice video. You can uh, get a little glimpse of these small details of what uh, mm-hmm. what the band is doing. Yeah, it's a magnificent strategy, and I think uh, that musicians should think more about that as far as their set list. When you end with something like Pink Frosty, I haven't listened to that concert, uh, but when you end with something like that, it almost entices the crowd to think, well, what are you going to do after? <laughs> but And then there's nothing. And it just, it's exciting. It's exciting in its own way. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, they are more well known for closing sometimes with the instrumental Sweet and Low, which is mm-hmm. kind of a, I mean, it's all in the title. It's, it's a very chill little number. Um, so I think that's, Depending on their mood, that's the kind of thing they would like to to pull every once in a while, and it, it's yeah, it's it's a cool and memorable way to end something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have to remember that they weren't out to get people riled up, or to get people angry or mad at anything. If you're going to be mad at anything, get mad at some of the systemic uh, problems that are around. That's all. Um, I, I'm think well. There's there's a bunch of songs I shouldn't pull any out, but there's they they will do that. But they want to probably leave the people at the end of a concert feeling good and feeling feeling mellow. Right. <laughs> to, 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 yeah, feeling mellow. <laughs> On the Facebook page for this podcast, uh, I ask some people to weigh in with some of their thoughts about the song. And one that I one that grabbed me is uh, Joe Gross, friend of the show, said, I always wondered if this song was about him, uh, Ian MacKay, getting sick in 1996, uh, which is kind of interesting. I guess you're you're aware of that whole story. Oh, yeah. The pleurisy. Yes. Yeah. There's there's this whole interview about it that I'll I'll put in the show notes for listeners if you want to check out that link. Uh, It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. It's from this interview that Ian did with Monozine. And you can read all about this crazy sickness that he went through in uh, 1996. Um, But just Mm -hmm. a quote from the end of it, you know, when I was thinking about uh, Joe wondering if it was about him getting sick, um, I was like, well, you know, I'm not sure. But the the last couple of questions in this interview, the interviewer says, um, did you did you feel refreshed when you got back to it, back to music? Did it feel good to return to something you hadn't dealt with? And Ian said, I think it was a beginning of a whole new era for the band. By the time I got home, Brendan had arrived home. He was out west with his girlfriend. When they returned, he had announced that they were going to get married and have a child. Suddenly, everything just changed. The band has completely changed. Uh, The interviewer says, did that seem like it was a visible shift in direction? 
And Ian said, I think it was a realistic shift. We'll never be the same because now we have a baby in the band. That's great. I'm all for life. We've been operating as a band for a decade, doing what we do. We do it very well, but there's a point where we're like, come on, throw us a couple of curveballs. Give us something to work with here. We have to exist Mm -hmm. in real time. And part of real time is the evolution of life. Look, here we are, the same four people we keep playing together. Everything around us changes. Life, we get older, things evolve, our music evolves. It's about real time and the idea of having kids and people's lives changing. It's supposed to happen. We're not supposed to be the same. Four full-time Fugazi members. I want there to be that kind of effect. I want life to insinuate itself into our band. I'm psyched about that. Um, Now we only tour for two weeks instead of two months, and that's fine. In the year since then, Joe moved out of his house and got married. Guy moved out of his place. And everyone's life really changed radically in 97 after this illness. It just presented a stopping point for the band. We've gone for 10 years, I got sick, and bam, we were not going to play for six months, and that was it. That made everyone reassess what they were doing with their lives. I'm comfortable being a band that doesn't play out as much, and also uh, a band that accepts not only the limitation of our health, but also the limitations of family. I'm into that, and I think it's good to work under that context. End quote. So, yeah, given that, um, I think it's a totally interesting interpretation for... For this to be a, a song that was written about his sickness, or at least about where his mind was after that sickness. I could easily see that for sure. Um, and it's, you know, I think that it's sort of a, a, a call or a warning that we should heed the fact that evolution is always there. And things are going to evolve whether we like it or not, and they aren't going to stay the same. And we shouldn't cry over the fact that they aren't the same. We should just go with the flow. Right. Yeah. I think it's uh, that's worth remembering. Um, for a different interpretation, Ryan Stark said, to me, it's a clear love song. And as love songs go, it's somewhat alone in that it exists during a current relationship that is enduring, rather than most love songs that are about acquiring love or lamenting its loss. No one typically writes from the perspective of the current day-to-day parts of the relationship that can be just as intense and emotional. This song has stakes. It's a relationship worth working on, however not easy. Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's great points, Ryan. Jared Coffin says a little about the live experience. He says, I saw Pink Frosty played for the first time in Philadelphia at the Electric Factory in 97. The crowd was not nice, and Ian said at the end of the song something like, it's really weird to have people talking while we're playing. He wasn't correcting the audience or anything. He went just into the most depressing talk I've ever heard him speak, ending with, I'm not sure if anything I'm saying makes a damn bit of difference anyway. <laughs> so an off well, night you for know, playing Pink Frosty, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm, you have to remember, um, I don't know what you know about pleurisy. I'm not exactly um, educated totally on it, but it's very hard to breathe. And, you know, we could take this in during the COVID times as being a um, parallel core um, uh, track and the whole thing. And when you're down to that level where you're just savoring every breath you can, and if you have to cough, it's incredibly painful. Hmm. You are just drawn in and you are, you know, you're held to your own human uh, frailty and realizing that, hey, this is important to me. This is life and death to me. Playing, playing music, maybe playing music is a little less important than some of the other things in life. Right. Yeah. 
in that in that interview I mentioned, Ian was saying some stuff like that. That's very interesting. I I imagine he he uh, unloaded some of these thoughts on you at the time because um, that sounds yeah exactly like what he was saying. Yeah, it's uh, it was a it was an experience I'm sure, and plus being in Australia, I believe where it was, uh, you know, so yeah. many miles from home. <laughs> oh wow. Dick Fenn from uh, the Facebook page says, I wonder if they first recorded a slowed down drum track or if they did that afterwards. It sounds slowed down at different speeds listening to the sound of Brendan's bell. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I guess I didn't um, quite listen to if that bell was going at different pitches. Um, I don't remember it. I don't remember anything being speed changed at all. I wonder um, if, does that uh, bell, if he, if he hits that at different physical locations, is, are there different pitches? Hmm. That's a good question. Probably so. I, I know I have the clanger for the bell. The little clapper is hanging in, in our studio right now. Because, <laughs> of course, he used the bell, but he didn't use the, the clapper in it. Is that one um, for sale? <laughs> I don't know. It may go to a museum. Who knows? Um, it better. Also, if Brendan, Brendan wants it back, I'll give it to him. <laughs> but uh, that's the. I don't remember any kind of slowing down of the tape at all. Okay, good to know. Um, yeah, that's um, so. That's more or less the end of uh, of the commentary that I had. Uh, any other details about the song that spring to mind? No, I think a lot of your listeners um, have been very, um, very observant about things that have been going on, and 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 the song itself and their their take on it uh, is wonderful, really wonderful. And like I said, different interpretations can all be correct. Yeah, um, and they're all wonderful too. Absolutely. Um, well, speaking of things that are all wonderful. Uh, all Fugazi songs are wonderful, in my opinion. Uh, but on the show, we always talk about ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? And we try to see if we can assign a rating from one to five stars based on like the just the Fugazi catalog. Do you have any idea, like, if you had to do that, what you would rate Pink Frosty? Ooh, boy, that's a good question. It's oh. Wow. You know, I guess, what are your qualifications? In other words, what do you, what would, what do you, what do you rate them as? The loudest? The most uh, to the point? The, I, 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 would, I would have a hard time rating it because it, it fits in with their whole catalog so well as far as being the, the wind-up for something other than, and, you know, and something... You know, I could just see uh, Guy just getting mad and angry and belting out lyrics. Um, and that would be the opposite, the polar opposite of Pink Frosty. Yeah. So the answer, your answer is, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, <laughs> I, think, I think I would give it a five as far as his effectiveness. Because it does that. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I think it's totally fair to say I don't know. And I was, yeah. What are the criteria exactly? That's exactly the right question. And that was something that I was thinking about earlier today because uh, sometimes I think about it in terms of, you know, if I saw, if I were to see Fugazi live, travel back in time and see a show, which songs would I be excited about seeing them play? 
uh, and this is not one of them, frankly. Um, mm. But in terms of songs that um, emerge, that come into my brain at random times, uh, that that just continually resurface in my life, and that I find myself thinking about in spite of myself, uh, Pink Frosty is up there. Actually, it's it occupies a place in my brain, um, and yeah, so. Uh, I, I think for the first time in the history of this podcast, I think I will decline to give a rating. I, like you, I don't know. Uh, I've I've never uh, forced my guests to uh, to give a rating if they don't want to, and I'm availing myself of that privilege for the first time right now. Pink Frosty is unrated for me. <laughs> yeah, I could see, I could see easily in a concert situation hearing Pink Frosty, and then. As soon as everything settles down at the very end, the last cymbal hit finally dies. Going into um, the song uh, that, you know, Gee sings about Justice Brennan. Yeah. And just hard, hard as nails and just striking at you. And I don't know, it, it just, that kind of, that kind of emotion from jumping from the the very fragile to the very very hard steely edge works for me it works for me too uh it's a really cool song and i feel very grateful that i got to discuss it with you don um it's it's a privilege really it's it's so great talking to you and um you know before we wrap up i'd like to ask you if you have anything in the way of plugs like, is there anything you've been recording in the studio recently you might ask people to check out or anything about anything? <laughs> I, I usually don't plug or non, not plug anything I do in the studio. It's for the, for the musicians uh, and artists to, to do on their own. Um, so I'm just, you know, I'm really just a journeyman type of person who's pushing the record button and whatever comes up, comes up. And sometimes we get some good results. So that's, uh, I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> well, you're, you're incorrigibly humble and, uh, it's, it's nice to have your, your presence on the show. Inner ear was, was kind of a landmark, but Don Ziantera still around He's going to be there, and uh, I, I'm sure that when we hear the next projects coming out of Ian Mackay's mind and, and company, I'm sure you'll have something of a hand in those. So uh, looking forward to it, man. Yes, uh, Corriki will be recording towards the end of September, um, and they will be coming out with a new record. So, uh, you know, evolution moves on. Yeah. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what the songs are. But you can expect something really, really revolutionary. Is that uh, is that about the last uh, band that's booked for uh, Inner Ear Studio Time? Yes, indeed, it is. Wow. Right, yeah, right before them, Scream is coming in, and then uh, then it'll be Koriki. Fantastic. I'll be in line to uh, to get whatever comes out, and I'll continue listening to your work. So thanks. Thank you very much, Ian. For me, as usual, folks. You can reach me at fugazi a to z at gmail.com, and the Facebook group is just called The Alphabetical Fugazi if you'd like to comment on some songs there. And that's it for me and for Don and for Pink Frosty, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing place position. Until then, keep your eyes open. <laughs> <laughs>